Tudor Jones investing in this space now, right? Like I think I think the 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 macro sentiment towards digital assets is slowly changing. I don't want to lay a bull case saying all the hedge funds are coming, but I'm saying there is a need for good, accurate, clean data. That's one. And the second is there is also a very strong need for reliable non-biased research that's com- coming along with it so if, if you look at something like cb insights they have the data sources it's brilliant but they also create the best industry reports and that's why they're able to like you know constantly establish their uh market lead i'm super happy today to have joel john from outlier ventures and also an independent researcher uh on today's podcast as a guest I've known Joel for about a year now. He reached out to me uh, about a year ago, uh, asking some questions about the data that Covalent uh, was providing. And uh, we've then, since uh, since then, we've been collaborating, we've been working together, and uh, I'm proud to call uh, Joel uh, a friend uh, and someone I can bounce ideas off. Uh, Joel, so happy to have you here. How are you today? Doing good. Uh, thanks for having me on. Uh, I've been just planning out uh, data stories for the rest of the week, quite frankly. So. Just, okay. just the right time, right place. Awesome. So let's uh, let's just jump in. Like, how did you get into the space? Oh, I was I was I was trying to create a low cost remittance network uh, on top of Bitcoin in in 2012 uh, because I was in in the Middle East where we have a high concentration of blue collar laborers, uh, specifically from Southeast Asia, and uh, the objective was to try and do better than Western Union for sending money home. Uh, to regions like India and Vietnam and Indonesia. Uh, clearly, it was a little too ahead of its time. Uh, neither the banks nor uh, any of the elders that I spoke to back then uh, bought into it. But uh, what it turned into was uh, a lifelong fascination for things like economics and uh, specifically looking at how technology can make an impact in developing economies. So that's the story. Okay. And so, um... You've been with Outlier for a couple of years now. So how long have you been with Outlier? I've been, I've, I've been with them, frankly, for almost uh, the entirety of my formal career. Okay. Uh, I, I, I quit my first job in a month. Uh, I joined uh, Outlier Ventures as an intern in 2017, uh, right before the boom. Uh, and I've been with them since then. Okay. Yeah. And so uh, what would you say is the most interesting aspect of your job at Outlier? I think... Uh, it's, it's, it's two things. One is uh, it's an environment that requires you to constantly learn and upgrade. Uh, there's, there's never been two weeks where I can just rely on something I learned a couple of months back and just survive. Uh, it, it requires constant updating and constantly speaking to people in the industry. So that's, that's exciting. Uh, the other is I think the culture is uh, fundamentally different from what I could expect anywhere else. Uh, it's one that's fairly fluid enough for experimenting, but still rigid enough for uh, you know, having discipline and, and delivering things. So uh, that would likely be the two things that keep me most aligned with Outlier Ventures. So I have a question about your research process. Is it mostly your team feeding inputs to uh, the investment arm? Or are there, or is it a back and forth where the investment arm sees this trend and then they ask you to go and do some due diligence, figure out what the opportunities and so on? How does that work? So I think it's, it's, uh, it, for us, it's, it's, it's fairly collaborative. So again, because my role keeps uh, blending in with the investment side of things, uh, it's, it's, it's quite often that we keep discussing trends for months before we make uh, an investment decision around that area. So 
uh, again, going back to DeFi, right? Like we were looking at it for about six, eight months before we made a formal investment in that space. So it's, it's always uh, internal collaborations and discussions. Uh, and then also you, you, you also want to time the market to a certain degree, because if uh, you invest in a seed stage firm and the market takes two and a half years to really understand what the theme is, uh, it's very likely that they won't be able to catch on a follow-on round. So it's a little bit of timing it, but it's it's uh, it's constant uh, back and forth, and it's also research that feeds into an investment decision versus the other way around. Except uh, more recently, now that we have our accelerator, we see a very uh, diverse uh, theme when it comes to like startups, right? Like so, uh, at, at Basecamp, we invest around thirty to fifty thousand dollars. Uh, in teams with barely just a business plan. So we see things that are, what you would call outright exotic, right? Like nobody is discussing about this on Twitter. So their research needs to feed into that uh, investment process, but more or less it's, it's usually on, on the other side. I would say in a, in a way that investment there is actually research dollars. Let this team figure out what the, the biggest problems are and what the pain points yes. are, right? In a way it's an extension. Yeah. Over the last three years, uh, you've faced lots of challenges that you've overcome. Uh, what is the most recent problem that you have overcome this year? So I think uh, it's—I won't say it's—it's—it's it's, it's, it's a problem with the recency bias. It's—it's it's been there since uh, the day I formally joined this industry, and that is uh, how data can be manipulated to say all kinds of stories, right? So. You have a narrative that's uh, there on Twitter, but you dig into the numbers and you have cons considerably different point of view on the matter. Uh, and I think early on in my career, I had my biases uh, quite strongly made on the basis of who was there in my uh, social media feed. And I was quite fortunate enough to have one of the seniors just, just ping me and say, hey, uh, I think that's that's a wrong view. And it just made me realize that the algorithms were playing games with me. So now what I've done really is I have a Twitter lists with people on, on very different ends of the spectrum. I keep it private so that, uh, yeah, it's, it's just my little research playground, but I, I scroll through the feeds and, and I get completely different points of view. But after that, I, I keep it all aside and I just go through the numbers and then have my own view coming in. But still there's, there's a lot of biases, bias kicking in there still. But I think uh, fundamentally the problem is you have to be kind because these are still early stage startups but you also have to be a little harsh because there's hundreds of millions of dollars at stake here, right? So uh, you really need to be able to cut through uh, what is uh, intentionally malicious maybe and, and just startups being startups. So that's that's finding that balance is, is what's really the hardest, I would say. It's a glass half empty, half full kind of idea. Yes, yes. Yeah. And uh, I think a lot of people say blockchain founders are bad at selling, but I would say, uh, a lot of them are really good at selling. So you need to really take a step back and really look at the numbers and make a more uh, nuanced opinion about what's going on. And in a lot of cases, you just ping them and say, hey, this, this is what the numbers look like. What do you think? And, and they give you a blunt, frank answer. So it's, it's a little bit about getting out of that algorithmic bubble that we all find ourselves in. Okay, so just share something that you've learned about the space uh coming into 2020, something you didn't know and something, oh wow, this is like, okay, this is like mind blowing. Uh, the impact of interoperability on DeFi is something I'm, I'm, I'm quite excited about. I get it, it's a lot of uh, junk <laughs> jargon you could say in, in some sense, but I think I'm, I'm really keen to see what uh, 
DeFi ecosystems being able to communicate with one another could do. So uh, a simple example is, is the impact that uh, Tether had by switching from Omni to ERC-20 standard. It just managed to like, you know, take a life of its own. Now, of course, uh, it's a little controversial and there's, there's a lot of stories uh, being uh, discussed around it. But I think uh, once you have things like ERC-20 assets being able to communicate with the data marketplace, uh, you, you would see very different uh, hybrids coming out of the market. And I think that makes me uh, a, excited and be really worried about the amount of learning, relearning I have to do about the space. Uh, I think that's, that's that's part of what keeps the space so so exciting, right? Like uh, there's, there's always something new to, to look forward. Are there other examples with interoperable uh, systems? So you uh, brought up the Tether example of it moving. That's not really interoperable though. That's a... Yeah. Basically, That's lift and shift, it's, right? It's, yeah, it's, exactly. It's, it's, but uh, I would it's, say uh, maybe wrapped Bitcoin, maybe uh, Tether, BTC, TBTC. Those are interoperable because you're using assets uh, on one side. And they, but other other examples of uh, interoperable DeFi uh, protocols I, or systems? Yeah, very hypothetical example. Uh, just just dreaming out loud here. So. Uh, you have something like uh, uh, a Microsoft decentralized identity system, or you have something like Sovereign, which is again a self-sovereign identity solution, uh, or Three Box DB. You, you connect one of those. You connect a series of your public chains to show as a proof of wealth when you go to a, a Visa center. Which, because right now, more people are willing to disclose the wealth that they hold in digital assets, but it's not taken as a proof of wealth yet. So if there is a new generation that's coming that that holds the vast majority of its assets in uh, digital assets, uh, why not make it provable to uh, a, a party that's that's giving you loans, right? So that that is again just one case is Visa, but let's 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 go one step further. That is, if you are running a startup and you are taking payments only in USDC, very very niche solution, but you should be able to really prove that you receive uh, constant payments and be able to receive a credit line on top of that. And this is this is very easily verifiable, but the solutions don't exist for uh, an identity network, uh, Ethereum, and uh, your traditional banking ecosystem to communicate with one another. So five years down the line, I see these worlds converging, right? Like, uh, why is it that reputation systems online and, and the way uh, your offline visa officers uh, analyze your net worth is so disconnected? So. Uh, so that's one. The second is your your digital reputation as as a means of verifying uh, who you are, is is likely going to converge increasingly. So uh, I think, for instance, I've I've heard so many stories of people going to airports and showing their Twitter handles or their Instagram handles uh, to prove that they're a legitimate person. Uh, I had a friend who was a Forbes 30 under 30 who, uh, when he went to a country in the Middle East, he had to actually pull up the news item and show. So I think. There's, it's it's just such a I wouldn't say humiliating, but it's such a weird experience uh, sitting there and speaking to another human and all their biases. I feel uh, you can likely make it a little more automated and secure uh, with with what these technologies allow you. Maybe five six years down the line, but it also has its own algorithmic biases involved. It also has its own inefficiencies. But I'm I'm excited. So let's talk about the market and, and business models and uh, where startups can see opportunity. Um, so, you know, if you think about uh, layer layer one projects, uh, I think there are a five to 20 multi-decade uh, kind of rollout adoption scheme. 
And so the, the funding and the project size, everything has to support that kind of, uh, that kind of rollout uh, because it's a pretty massive project. But if you look at smaller projects that are on the application tier that are probably on the middleware tier, they need a more realistic um, go-to-market and a realistic timeline uh, to show traction for the second round of funding and the third round of funding. And today, I think there is a gap where Series A investors are not able to get the conviction on the middleware, probably on the middleware, on the, on the app layer, on the app layer. And so you're able to seed fund uh, companies uh, on the app layer, but they're not able to show meaningful traction for the Series A. So what do you think is happening there? And do you see that changing in the next two years? So I think a uh, num number of things to touch base there. So historically, I would say in 2017, 2018, uh, what I used to see as in being on the investment side of things is that uh, you would be fine until your Series A. You could, you could get your you know, couple million dollars uh, and then likely work till a Series B. And because of the hype cycle, it's likely that you would have been able to close Series B. I think what's happened in the last year or so is that conviction has reduced drastically to a point where uh, that check is happening at Series A, like you rightfully said. Uh, I think it's, 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 it's the classic curve that happens in every startup ecosystem is that when you have hype going on, you have a lot of people willing to take early stage bets, but the moment capital dries up, you have uh, what you would say, uh, I don't want to use the word culling because it's, 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 it's quite uh, insensitive, I would say. But what you really have is uh, leaner teams that are more efficient uh, coming out stronger than earlier. So if you look at, uh, of course, you're a founder, so you would have noticed this. If you look at the startup ecosystem in blockchains in the last year and a half, you're seeing more and more teams cutting down. But what that means is it's easier for you as a founder to get to an investor. And it's easier for an investor to make that decision early on. So um, I need to verify this with data, but it's likely that we've seen larger series A's and series B's in the last six months. And that would likely trickle down to seed stages too. Uh, we would have fewer deals, but larger uh, ticket sizes happening, which in turn is good because now you have startups that don't need to compete against 50 other players. They have like three, four other players, each of them carving their own niche and uh, you know having enough capital to, to go to market. I think that's 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 the law of markets and that's fine. But I think uh, coming back to the, uh, is it harder being in the application side? It, it definitely is because your runway is much shorter. Your the, the the metrics on basis of which your Josh is 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 very clear. You need to have a very clear business model. But uh, I would say that if you can crack these things, the opportunity is still uh, in fact larger than before because two things, right? Like one is you have funds sitting on dry capital. Like, uh, Anderson Horowitz just raised their almost half a billion dollars this, this last week. There's, there's likely more coming. So you have funds sitting on dry capital waiting for fewer teams with larger checks. So if, if anything, it's good. Uh, but of course, it, it all boils down to Bitcoin's price. Really. Now, now with halvening, uh, if you're going to see another trend back to, let's say, 12, 13K, you will have uh, a bunch of new teams coming in. Again, that's just, that's just markets being markets. You can't really change anything about it. But uh, I would say now is a good time to be a good founder. If you have things in place, it's it's great. I think there's a lot of empathy there, out there too. So uh, one of the things I keep trying to do is, is to reach out to founders and, and say, hey, if, if, if I use their product, I, I let them know that it was good and I appreciate what they do. I think uh, that finding a new opportunity, if you quit a startup now, might be easier because people are more empathetic, I would say. And you they also have your track record uh, versus what, what the situation was earlier. So... 
it's uh, I, I would say this is something specific to blockchains. Right? You take any hype cycle, you you see the same stories play out. Awesome. Uh, the only one addition I would say to that answer is that it's always a good time to be a good founder. Good founders can survive anytime, <laughs> yes, so yes, it doesn't matter. Absolutely, absolutely, no, no, yeah. no, no, no doubt about it. It's, it's always a good time to be a good founder. How do you measure success in your role? How do you know that you're doing a job better today than you were six months ago? So I think uh, I, I I need to judge that question from two lenses. Like one is as a researcher, and second is as someone working in in, in VC. So as a, as a researcher, the question is, is quite simple. How, how much deeper can I go in a topic and how, how much quicker can I deliver a tangible uh, outcome there, right? right? So uh, for me, like, uh, I'm not sure if you recall, but when I started pinging, you are starting to learn how to visualize data, how to, how to pull the right data sources, how to slice it, uh, still learning SQL. So all of those are entirely new skill sets that I had to pick up on the job because I come from a, a economics background at the end of the day. Uh, but uh, I think on the investment side, it's your your indicators lag a little bit because it also has uh, two components to it. One is your human interactions, your human relationships. So uh, a lot of people think that VCs judge themselves on basis of the good investments they've made. But I think for me, uh, my I think not star is, is the all the investments that I have not made but have a good relationship with. So uh, especially because of two things, right? One is or they're doing fails and they do something else, I, I, I get a message and I deeply appreciate it because maybe that's something we could invest in. Or two, uh, they're doing something that one of our startups needs to collaborate with, I can I can always ping them. So uh, that is one. Second is of course your, your ROI on that investment. But again, that takes about six to eight months to really come to fruition. So uh, off late, what I've learned is how, how, how quick can you make a meaningful dent in the metrics of a startup? Uh, like working alongside them, right? Like it's, it's not just the check that matters, it's also working alongside them that makes all that dent. So it could be simple things like, uh, if you notice just 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 this last week, we I, I released this piece on, uh, I released this piece on 0x, I'm sorry, yeah. I was thinking. Uh, and and, and it, it's, 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 it's in collaboration with Nick Tail and it's likely that I would be doing more uh, research collaboration, so things like those are my short-term uh, metrics, but on the long run, of course, it, it, it boils down to the ROI. So Sounds. just 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 to sum it up, on the research side, if I can bring something to the table that nobody else is doing, and I'm constantly upskilling myself, great job. On the investment side, it's about human relationships, and of course, the ROI. Uh, so let's talk about data. Right now, there's the uh, market data, which is the off-chain component. Uh, you know that still dominates the space because centralized exchanges have the wealth of the volume. And then you have the on-chain component, which you know um, over the last few months, it's really, really being you're seeing an uptake. Um, where would you see are the opportunities for startups? Uh, if I were to start something today. Uh, to to carve out a meaningful niche, or uh, where do you see there's a gap in the in the space today? So I think uh, if 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 you look at data today, uh, the problem is that you have a lot of numbers, but the narratives around it is still not clear. So, and the reason for that is a lot of the data providers today are building for developers, right? So you you're, you're trying to sell to adapt, you're trying to sell. Uh, to, a, to a quant fund, right? Like uh, you're not trying to sell on the B2C side yet because 
cannot yet convince that the market there is large and especially when the there is a downturn in the market so i think uh, what what uh, the block did is, is quite brilliant right they have beautiful storytelling but they also have uh, data going along with it and i think there is still a major gap there because uh, people still want data driven storytelling and that's what i see with my uh, blog every time like if if, if i if if i were to compete against uh, a lot of the established industry folks i would very likely struggle but whenever i have data driven storytelling that sees a life of its own uh, so that's one second is uh, how do you service to a vc analyst specifically so when you when you take something like crunchbase uh, it's 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 built for analysts that does not want to like let's say pull in data via your api they, they don't want to deal with uh, a lot of the technical side of things so i think the the easier you make that space the higher the odds of you converting customers especially on a uh, a case where you can add more value to it but again these it's it's not like the space does not have enough startups right there are brilliant founders working on it but i think the sales process may be a little broken because uh, for a lot of the analysts and vcs that i speak to like these are very likely customers of theirs discovering them is a pain so uh, i think one so if if you optimize how you sell your data there is likely an opportunity there and the third is i would say something like i don't want to use the cliched bloomberg term here but i would still say that in spite of firms like santiman and glassnode a lot of these firms that bring uh, these data sets together i think masari also does a great job there is still a gap in terms of finding a good reliable data source uh, that, that that gives me everything i need right like uh, what's the one place i can go to every morning get on chain data get the latest headlines uh, get up to date on which telegram group is booming uh, there is still no single source for it and large part of the problem is of course uh, sales is broken and that also means your your funding side is broken right you can't solve for this without at least a couple million dollars so uh for founders you have to be very very smart in terms of how you go to market you have to sell to very niche customer bases you have to crack uh, profitability very early on and then likely raise a couple of million dollars we can before you can really take a crack at some of those problems now the question i have is are these business models really vc fundable are they vc scale if you look even in the traditional market you brought up an example of crunchbase but that's because it was supported by techcrunch so that was okay but right. metamark actually failed right metamark yep. uh raised i think 25 30 million dollars and then even hit series b which i would presume at that stage your saas metrics are top notch you have everything buttoned down but they still failed because the market wasn't big enough and they were not growing fast enough so uh would you say that uh, like the crypto market obviously is not big enough so where is the vc vc scale opportunities uh in the next 2 years uh when you when a startup is to go to market right so i think uh, it, it it boils down to how you see expectations right like do you it's it's not like data does not have huge exits. uh coin market cap just did a 400 million dollar exit yeah. oh, sorry yeah right it's it's one of the biggest in this space i think after circle and polonix uh it's is one of the largest uh but they were also in this space very early on and uh you know they had a lot of things going well for them I think it's do I see a unicorn out of data markets no I don't uh that's that's the honest truth but do I see a very profitable firm that can raise a series A and series or series B and then you know like give a 15 20x return or or create 
uh, strong cash flows very likely. So I think it, it boils down to how you align your expectations and how you service your client. Tudor John's investing in this space now, right? Like I think I think the 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 macro sentiment towards digital assets is slowly changing. I don't want to lay a bull case saying all the hedge funds are coming, but I'm saying there is a need for good, accurate, clean data. That's one. And the second is there is also a very strong need for reliable, non-biased research that's com coming along with it. So if, if you look at something like CB Insights, they have the data sources that's brilliant, but they also create the best industry reports. And that's why they're able to like, you know, constantly establish their uh, market lead. So what I would say to any startup that's, that's looking on the data side of things is don't just look at VCs alone, alone as your customers. Uh, I think, if, of course, you know this best. Uh, be smart about who you sell to, uh, you know, di diversify early on but keep optimizing, right? There's, there's always these uh, flywheels where you can increase your complexity and, and the cost that you charge your clients over time. What, what data sources you personally use uh, to do your job? Oh, okay. <laughs> uh, I think I, I rely the most on Crunchbase because we invest a lot on the uh, equity side, right? Uh, but specifically for tokens, uh, token analyst was definitely one of my favorite of all times. Uh, I, I, I think, uh, yeah, I think I, I really miss that team uh, and, and what the product was. So that was one. I think I use sentiment for a quick san sanity check whenever I hear about a protocol and I want to know about what their social indicators are and things like those. I, I, I use, uh, of course, I, I, I ping individual uh, data sources like yourself every once in a while. So Covalent, Dune Analytics uh, do, do, do fall in that bracket. But I think it's it's also about one-to-one uh, -one conversations with with good founders on on Telegram too, right? So I think uh, if if someone's really looking for the best data sources, the block has this brilliant uh, list uh, that hands down has has all the best data sources. But at the end of the day, it boils down to conversations with other smart people, right? Like other analysts, other uh, data sources, so that you have a sanity check because the numbers are cheap. I would say, uh, of course, there's a lot of effort that goes behind it, but it's really the the, the perspective that makes all the difference. So let's uh, let's do a thought experiment here. Why did token analyst uh, not work out? The team is excellent. I've seen their work. I actually have spoken to a lot of their data scientists, and they're like top top tier talent. Um, their data is like t really really good. Um, so why did it not work out? Like, what happened? So I think uh, had they been around in 2017, they would have been one of those successes that we would have said. I think uh, the uh, the market environment fundamentally changed after what happened in March 12. Uh, what I've been hearing is that a lot of the uh, funds in Southeast Asia sadly had to uh, wrap up because of uh, you know the volatility in the market. So which means it's likely that a large chunk of the paying customers were no longer able to you know convert to long-term clients that they can uh, pay for. So that's one. Second is uh, the fact that people don't really pay for data as much as they should. So there's a business modeling problem there. So if I, as an analyst, has to get a multi-thousand dollar budget expense approved, it's, it's, it's too long a process uh, in, in any given VC firm. So I won't take that pain unless it's absolutely necessary. Now, is that data worth a couple thousand? Yes. But would I do go, go that mile converting a fund for them, unless it's absolutely critical, I may not. So that's that's one. It's long sales cycle process. Uh, and third is, is the fact that it's a, it's a very niche cl cl client base, right? Like you have about 200, 300 or crypto specific funds. Uh, you add the exchanges and other associated 
players, you have like, let's say 450 people of which you're able to convert, let's say 10% of it, which is very optimistic. That's like 45 actual clients. Uh, that number may not be very profitable for you at the end of the day, even at a 300 to let's say $500 ticket size. So the, the, the economics of the space is, is, is still coming to age. And I think it, it's, it's just like most other things, right? Uh, you, you, you take mobile devices, you take gaming uh, devices, the, there, there is this curve where prices come down over time. Now for token analysts, I think the one thing that may have worked against them is that they were uh, one of the first to offer a lot of these data sets uh, in this industry, I would say. Like they were, they, they were the ones who, for me at least, uh, democratized access to uh, data around how much exchanges are storing, how much uh, miners have, right? So they, 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 they've done a lot of homework around that. Now, whether that can be a path to profitability on the short run is, is, is a big question mark. Now, you add all these factors and it's likely that uh, the, the, the ecosystem funding environment itself changed in the last few months again. So, uh, uh, like, see, I think it's, you, again, I've, 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 I've totally skirted what may have happened internally because I have no idea, of course, uh, but the, the, the environment is one where you have to be very careful as, as, as a data provider. And of course, I have this conversation with every data provider I have is, is how profitable are you and how soon can you be profitable? Uh, all right, Joel, so let's get you on the record for something that you find controversial in the space, something you feel like, no, this team just doesn't get it. They don't belong here. They should GTFO. Uh, so let's have you on the record uh, admitting that these guys are, uh, are tourists. I, th I think, I, think uh, I don't want to call out names here because uh, I've, I've built my career avoiding conflict as much as I can and bringing data as much as I can. But one thing I would take a contrarian stance on is the first actual unicorn in, in DeFi would very likely be B2C oriented and not be focused on trading at all. Uh, they would very likely be highly regulated. Uh, they would very likely be in an emerging economy uh, using something like a USDC, not Tether, not DAI, uh, to do offer on ramps and off ramps for likely international remittances. So just, just connecting some dots there. But I think uh, we, we've been, I don't want to use the word inbreeding, but we've been too obsessed about trading and we've been too obsessed about just moving money internally and speculating instead of looking at customer problems. And that, I wouldn't say hurts me, but it, it annoys me because, hey, where are the unicorns in this space? Where are we building the, the billion dollar firms in this space that don't focus on speculating, but actually looks at solving something relevant for someone that's not in this space, right? This is not a diss on speculating and, and all that, but I feel there is there is value that can come out of that too. Now, of course, there's players like Near Protocol and Cello Network is coming to market. Maybe they would do something different, but I feel uh, we need to be thinking more about how to look beyond just moving Ethereum on chain, uh, which again, we, we've done it so much to a point where it's almost perfect and flawless. Like props to a lot of the team working on UX and, and scalability. It's, it's become so good. I can almost use it like a bank, but how do we take it to market now? So that's 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 where I feel uh, we have too much of uh, a circle job, I would say. So I would like to get your thoughts on speculation. Is speculation a bad thing? I would say in the traditional financial world, speculation is what uh, the majority of the volume is. If you look at options, what is options? Options is speculating on the price, whether you're going to uh, go down or go up. So is speculation a bad thing? 
No, ab ab absolutely not. I think uh, speculation is the basis for all sound economies. And I think even, even a founder that's building something very much of value is speculating on himself. It's just that what you speculate on and how long you speculate on matters, right? And, and, and the degree to which an ecosystem is speculating on something matters. So uh, it's, it's again, I, I'm maybe very much taking a holier than you view here is that I feel a lot of exceptionally smart people are likely betting away their life savings in an ecosystem that is very likely not regulated and they may very likely create more wealth for themselves in equity if they just take a step back. That's that's the only thing I'm, I'm mentioning. I think uh, a healthy ecosystem where there's active speculation is very much needed. There is uh, no question about it. If, if anything, the volatility in Bitcoin and then Ethereum is what attracted people to the space, right? It's, it's not uh, just decentralized space that, that got them all in. But uh, if you have the vast majority of your smartest people in an ecosystem looking at just price starts all day long, it has psychological after effects. It has personal after effects. Uh, and that, that's what worries me. But so again, this, this is the story of every generation. It's just that I think we should be aware of the fact that the pathways to riches is not just a leverage position on, on, on a coin. It's also building value and equity. And there's, there's nothing wrong in taking a step back and taking uh, building that value over a couple of years. So let's talk about DeFi. Uh, DeFi, you know, starting with the stablecoin uh, lending platforms, which is, you know, really, really flourished uh, to all the ideas on the fringes that are just starting to mature, for example, uh, token sets uh, uh, and so on. What themes are you super excited for in the DeFi space in 2020? So I think the themes I'm excited for and the themes that will see traction this year are very different. Uh, the themes I'm excited for is anything that abstracts away the complexity of DeFi from the user, blends in with the regulator to a point where it's just necessary, but goes to market quicker. So uh, I think uh, the FSB ruling uh, from, from the IMF is very likely going to have a very strong after effect on the DeFi ecosystem. Uh, after the corona situation is, is it's a little settled, you'll likely have regulators coming out and seeing things around stable coins. At which point you'll also have regulators like uh, the Monetary Authority of Singapore, uh, people in Switzerland uh, and even the Bank of England coming through and saying, we'll give you this safe haven where you can ex experiment so long as you follow certain rules. And that would lay the basis for the next generation of DeFi startups. So that's, I, I'm absolutely excited about it. Uh, and I think that's 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 going to take uh, a life of its own. But in the interim, there's also uh, the, the space that's going to see traction in the next six months, right? I think uh, what DYDX is doing in terms of launching the Bitcoin perpetuals on, on, on their chain is, is quite exciting. I think what Synthetics is doing with their layer two on uh, with their layer two trading platform is, is is going to be quite exciting. I haven't had a chance to use it, but I feel it's it's going to be cool. Uh, I think Zero uh, X has launched this uh, Matcha.xyz, which is again uh, another trading platform that's, that's coming to market. I think what's happening is the the gap between your traditional trading uh, platforms and your DeFi trading platforms is, is really close, coming close and closer. And I'm really, really excited about what the after effects of it. The other thing I'm excited about is, is what I said initially, right? Uh, the, the after effects of uh, interoperability. So you have Cosmos coming of age, you have Polkadot coming of age. Uh, we would very likely see uh, a number of uh, new solutions come to market. You have Tether being ported to Algorand recently. I haven't used it, I've just downloaded the wallet actually. But I think uh, the user experiences would vastly differ. You have actually Tether even on uh, Tron, so I wouldn't test that too. But I feel uh, all of these are, are are creating unique customer experiences that I couldn't have imagined in 2015 or 2014. 
Okay, let's let's talk about how this space can flourish. So right now, you look at the entire crypto market. Um, market cap is about two hundred billion, give or give or take. Uh, out of that, you know, obviously Bitcoin is the granddaddy, the eight hundred uh, pound gorilla in the space, uh, and then uh, Ethereum is about fifteen billion. And then you have this long tail of assets with uh, various uh, other uh, other use cases. And then the DeFi tokens themselves is about a uh, billion dollars. So uh, staking is coming on board over the next, I would say, next year, two years. Staking is going to be a major focus. In some ways, staking uh, interoperates with DeFi. Sometimes it doesn't. Sometimes it cannibalizes DeFi growth. Uh, some people ca categorize staking as DeFi because you're going to have insurance and options and all kinds of products along staking, especially around the locked uh, unbonding. Uh, what themes are you going to see uh, that will drive the $200 billion crypto market cap to uh, starting with $1 trillion, $2 trillion, $20 trillion, and $100 trillion? Okay, so I think uh, I would say $100 trillion is a little ambitious right now. Uh, but I think uh, the way we think about market caps is, is, is a little weird because we only look at digital assets and, and we also look the vast majority of which are either illiquid or have, uh, you know, no actual depth anywhere. So uh, that's, that's one thing I would say. If, 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 you, if, you, if you take into account the amount of equity invest, investments that's gone into the space and the appreciation that's happened there, and you take into account the, the amount of people and uh, associated industries, the actual market cap, including enterprise blockchains is likely around half, half a trillion, I would argue. But that, that's extremely optimistic. I'm not saying that is the case, right? Uh, what would take this to a trillion? I think if, if tether supply keeps coming in at this rate, you would have a market going to a trillion on its own without people doing much because you have, you know, you have the stable coin supply that, that keeps coming in. But assuming those factors aside, what would really take this space to a trillion is likely more unicorns um, and, and, and the, the equity value appreciation that happens there, right? So you have Binance, you have Coinbase, both of them built on speculation. Now, where do you get the next generation of uh, fintech startups? Just Let's just look at fintech. Fintech startups that use blockchains to actually scale. Now, you have something like a figure that uses a blockchain at the back end, but you don't really know much about it. Uh, isn't that a blockchain startup at the end of the day? I would actually argue, yes, it's just that it doesn't fit in our notion of what a blockchain is. Uh, you would very likely have self-sovereign identity solutions bringing in maybe not just $1 billion company, but multiple $100 million companies in different regions uh, solving very relevant problems. So that's likely going to expand the market. I think uh, things like staking is very likely going to change the unit economics, but I don't see it being a macro force that takes this to a $10 trillion economy because uh, how many people understand what staking is? How many people are actually engaged with the token economy, right? So just looking at the public digital asset market cap as a way into 10 trillion is I think a fairly flawed. We have to take into account the fact that at some point there would be people that don't understand anything about digital assets engaging with this. So Coinbase has actually already pioneered this to a great extent. You can already stake uh, without knowing anything about the asset itself, but is it going to take us to a trillion? I, I, I don't think so. So this, there's two things at play. One is, uh, fresh capital and speculation and all that taking us to a trillion, very likely possible. But uh, how do we get to a trillion and stay there? That would very likely require the next generation of unicorns coming, coming, coming of age. 
Hi there, I'm Joel. I work as a research analyst with Outlier Ventures. Uh, you will mostly find me on Twitter, mostly discussing numbers and the stories behind them. Uh, primarily excited about DeFi and its applications in emerging economies. So that's me.